0: Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Church, let me ask you if you would please to take your Bibles this morning and to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, we are approaching the end of our time together in the letter of 1 Timothy. We have this week and next week, and we're looking this morning at chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. There was an old Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. Burroughs, he was a British pastor who in 1642, he preached a series of sermons that were later gathered and they were collected under the title, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It really is a sermon series that was based on Philippians chapter 4, Verse 11, where Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Burroughs, he writes this, he says, Paul's meaning is that I find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me, though I have not outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my needs, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. Later, Burroughs, he goes on to define contentment in this way. How how would we define contentment? Here's what he says. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me say that again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. Is that you? Which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Beloved, I wonder if that describes you this morning. If your soul is so satisfied in God. It is so satisfied in Christ that you are content with whatever comes to you in life. I wonder if others would describe you as the kind of person who possesses this rare jewel of Christian contentment. I think it's safe to say that as we look around the world today and we, we look at television, we look at marketing, we, we look at the consumeristic age in which we live, it, it's probably safe to assume that this isn't what describes the lives of most people today. Sadly, if we're honest, I'm not sure it describes the lives of many Christians today either. There are many professing believers, there are many professing Christians who are restless, they are dissatisfied in life, they're always searching, always wanting more, living discontented lives. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. We're surrounded by discontented people, discontented in their driving, discontented in the weather, discontented in their jobs. They aren't making enough money. They aren't receiving enough credit. They're disappointed with their marriages. They're disappointed with how their kids are turning out. Their bodies are too fat. They're not beautiful enough. They often buy things they don't really need to improve their outlook on life, trying to buy their happiness. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. And here in our passage this morning in verses 1 to 10, Paul is going to address this topic of Christian contentment. He's going to talk about contentment and specifically contentment as it relates to our money and our possessions and our stuff. And so I believe this passage, it has much to teach us this morning about this important topic of contentment, about what it is, about how to find it. In fact, Paul is going to show us that true and lasting contentment is found in God alone. And he's also going to show us some dangers there are that will keep us from contentment. Dangers that if we aren't careful and if left unchecked, it can ultimately lead to eternal destruction. So may God give us grace this morning to listen attentively to His Word If you have your place there, let me invite you to stand as we honor together the reading of God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1, "...let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled." Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there's great gain in godliness with contentment. Where he brought, we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut through joint and marrow to the very heart of a person. And so we pray that your word would do its Word work this morning, that you would pierce our hearts this morning with truth. You would open eyes, strengthen faith, call the lost to salvation, work this morning through the preaching of your word, for the glory of Christ and for the good of your church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move now here into the the final chapter, chapter 6 of this letter, and really what is Paul's conclusion here to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus, we also find here that Paul is yet again addressing his two main concerns that have dominated this letter since the beginning. The first concern, remember back, notice chapter 1, verse 3, and what has ultimately prompted Paul to write this letter is, he tells us in verse 3 of chapter 1 that he left Timothy in Ephesus, he says, so that he may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul has left this, this young pastoral protege here in Ephesus in order to deal with these false teachers that are ravaging this church. And now, as he concludes his letter, notice here in chapter 6 and verses 3 to 10, he goes after these false teachers one last time. We're in chapter 6, verse 3, he's going to talk about their teaching. In verses 4 and 5, he's going to talk about their behavior and what it is their teaching actually produces And then notice down in verses 9 and 10, he's going to talk about their motives. Why it is they do what they do. And so notice how this letter, it both begins and ends with this emphasis here on false teaching. And it will ultimately, notice, end down there at the end with Paul's main exhortation in verse 20 of chapter 6, where he tells Timothy to guard the deposit. Guard the gospel. This is Paul's main concern, his first priority in this letter. It is, it is false teaching. It is correcting false doctrine. It is teaching sound doctrine. It's guarding the gospel. But there's a second concern Paul has in this letter, and we see that concern also here at the end in chapter 6 as well. What's his second concern? Here it is. How the gospel must shape the way that we live. How what we believe must shape how we live. Remember his thesis in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He says the reason he's writing is so that we would know how to behave, how to live in the household of God. Right doctrine must produce right living, or as Paul calls it in this letter, godliness. That our, our orthodoxy, our, our right belief, it must lead to orthopraxy. It must lead to our right living. You cannot have one without the other. And now here at the end as well, we see that again. We see it not only in this interesting example here in verses 1 and 2 about the slave-master relationship, how the gospel is to affect and shape that relationship and how to live, but we also see that in how the gospel shapes our attitude toward money and possessions verses 3 to 10, what we believe must shape the way that we live, and how the Christian is to live is a life of contentment. I want you to look at this passage with me this morning under three headings. First, we're going to look at a word to slaves in verses 1 and 2. Second, a final word about the false teachers, verses 3 to 5. And finally, a few warnings and exhortations about riches in verses 6 to 10. First, notice with me a word to slaves, verses 1 and 2. Originally, in my planning, I had planned to preach these two verses on their own, but for the sake of time, I'm going to include them here as well. And I don't think they'll be totally disconnected, as you see here in just a moment. But I want you to notice first a word about slaves. Now, at first, verses 1 and 2 might seem a bit out of place. I mean, where, where, do, where did this come from? Why, why is Paul bringing up this issue of slavery here in this letter? And I think there's perhaps two reasons why he brings it up here. The first reason, the fact that he brings it up here, is in this letter to show us that he's addressing a particular Specific situation that's going on here in the first century. Apparently, slavery was an issue. So much so that Paul, he feels the need to address it here in this letter. In fact, most scholars, they note that at this time, there were approximately 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Some have said that probably perhaps one-third of the population even of Ephesus were slaves. So much of the early church, as you can imagine, was made up of slaves. Paul addresses this issue in a number of places in his letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Galatians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 6. This is a real issue in the first century church. And so he's addressing it here. But I think there's perhaps another reason why he brings it up here. In this letter, at this point, in fact, remember the context he's writing in here. In chapter 5, notice back, if you remember, Paul has just been giving instructions here about how we are to honor and treat one another within the household of God, the, the family of God, the church. And so, we saw in chapter 5 in verses 1 and 2, he talks about these familiar relationships of brothers and sisters spiritual mothers and fathers and the family of God, how we treat one another, how we honor one another. Then in verses 3 to 16, notice he showed us how to care and honor widows. Last week, we saw how we care for and honor elders and pastors of the church. And so notice now here this week in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, he brings in now this one final group. In fact, it's it's probably... The most difficult relational situation within the church slaves and their masters. So, think about this for a moment. Both slaves and masters here in Ephesus are coming to faith in Jesus. The gospel's being preached, they're they're hearing the gospel, they're being saved, they're repenting of their sin and putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And now they've become part of the same church. Brothers and sisters in the same family. And so, how are they to relate to one another now? That's what Paul's addressing here. So, it actually fits perfectly with the context and the flow of this letter. How, how should the gospel shape the way they live? Now, let's be very clear on something. Let's be very clear that the Bible doesn't endorse Slavery. The Bible is not pro-slavery. It's oftentimes the criticism you hear of skeptics, you hear of unbelievers. Perhaps you've had a relative, you've had a coworker who's said this to you in order to try and trap you, try to get you to doubt the trustworthiness of the Bible, but that just is not the case. The Bible is, is clear. It does not commend, it does not endorse slavery. Let me just say a couple of things we could say a lot more, but let me just say a couple of things about slavery before we look here at verses 1 and 2. Here, here's the first thing you got to know. Number one, first thing, first century slavery, slavery was not race-based. It was not race-based. It wasn't chattel slavery, as we might think. We, we might have in our minds, when we read a text like this one, the transatlantic slave trade, we might think of chattel slavery as it was in the American South. But that's, that's just simply not the case. That's not what was happening in the Roman Empire at this time. No, most of the slaves at this time either were prisoners of war or they had entered into slavery willingly. They had actually sold themselves into slavery in order to pay off debts. In fact, the Roman law allowed For most slaves to be freed after seven years, they could work off a debt. In fact, they they could actually even buy their own freedom. So, this is not race based chattel slavery as you might think of it here going on in the first century. Here's a second thing, though, you need to know about it that American chattel slavery, the slave trade, was evil. It was evil. Racism is evil. It is a stain on this country. It is a stain on the American church in the South. And the Bible condemns it. It's plain and simple. In fact, Paul condemns it. If you look over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he condemns that kind of slavery by saying that kidnapping, man stealing, slavery, Chattel slavery is against God's law. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, he says, The sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality enslavers, literally it's man-stealers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It's contrary to the gospel. It's evil. Not only is slavery evil, racism is evil as well. The Bible forbids treating anyone as less because of their race, because of their skin color. No, we are all created in the image of God, and therefore we all possess inherent worth and dignity as image bearers. How important is that to say in light of this historic week? Amen? We are image bearers of God, and it's evil, it's wrong. And so then why doesn't Paul attack slavery here then head on? Why... why not encourage slaves to abandon their masters or encourage masters to free their slaves? Well, first of all, he does encourage slaves to seek their freedom if they can, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we have a whole letter of the Bible about the treatment, just treatment of slaves, letter Philemon, but the reason here in 1 Timothy, as is often the case in Paul's letters, is because he has something bigger on his mind. And what he has on his mind is the gospel. In fact, look there, verses 1 and 2. You can imagine, as men and women are coming to faith in Christ and the gospel is transforming lives, slaves and masters now coming into this same church family here in Ephesus, you can imagine the social, the relational tension it's causing. I mean, here you have both slaves and masters sitting together in pews. They had pews. So how do they relate to each other? Well, he gives us two commands. And each of these commands, notice, he also gives a reason, a foundation for why they should obey it. Command number one, look there, he says, verse one, show honor to your masters. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, literally, it's the Greek word doulos, slaves, that all her slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, the debate here is whether or not Paul's talking about believing or unbelieving masters in verse 1. But I'm inclined to think he's talking about believing masters because in chapter 5 he's talking about relationships within the church. So it only makes sense that these are believing slaves and these are believing masters. But it applies either way, and he's going to specifically talk about believing masters. Notice in verse 2. But in verse 1, very plainly, he says, notice, slaves are to show honor to their masters. They are to honor them. They are to respect them. First, Peter chapter 2, Peter says, servants, be subject to your own masters with all respect. So they are to respect those in authority over them. Paul's very plain. Honor your master's slaves. But notice this reason why. Verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. In other words, Paul says, the reason that slaves should honor Their masters is for the sake of the gospel. It's for the gospel. Verse 1, he says, the name of God, meaning God's own reputation, God's honor, God's glory. And in verse 1, the teaching, meaning the message of the gospel. So slaves, he says, are to honor their masters so that the name of God, so that the gospel isn't reviled, it isn't dishonored, and shamed. In other words, the reputation of God and the reputation of the gospel are at stake here. And so when you dishonor your master, what you are doing, Paul says, is you are reviling the gospel. You are reviling God. Why? Because the unbelieving world is watching you. So notice that Paul's motivation here is evangelistic. This is about the cause of Christ. The success of the gospel is more important than any one individual social class. But there's a second command. Notice in verse 2, don't disrespect a brother. Those who have believing masters, now notice specifically he's talking about believing masters, if not already, must not be disrespectful. So don't be disrespectful. Now, why that, why that command? Why might that be a temptation for slaves, believing slaves, to disrespect their believing masters? Well, I think it's a misapplication of the gospel. Because the, in, in the gospel, the, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Amen? Right? The, the, there, is, there is no distinction at the foot of the cross. Galatians 3.28 says, there is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is now neither slave nor free. We are all one in Christ, right? So why do I need to obey my earthly masters anymore? We're equals now, right? And Paul says in the gospel, that's true, but you are still under authority, In fact, in verse 2, notice his reasoning here for why. He says, For those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So, show them more respect now because they're your brother. You're disrespecting your brother. Verse 2, Rather they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So, this is radical. He's saying now... Because your brothers, your work is now to be considered an act of kindness to your brother. Honor them. They're your brothers in Christ. Let me just give two applications here. Before we move on. Verses three to ten. Application number one. While we may not be in the exact same context is first century Ephesus here the slave master relationship i think there is though church lots of application here for how we interact with those in authority over us specifically in the workplace how we how we honor and respect those who are in authority over us and we don't take advantage of our employer specifically and especially if they're believers so don't be lazy don't Show up late. Don't disrespect them with your words. Why? Because you're family now. And that's not how you treat family. But more importantly, the world is watching you. When you go to work tomorrow, the world is watching you. And you're saying something about the Gospel. And the reputation of the Gospel is at stake. But here's a second application. Why doesn't Paul overthrow slavery? I mean, it's a social injustice. One man owning another? Interestingly, it seems here that Paul is actually, many scholars think, laying the groundwork for the abolition of slavery. There's a reason why the abolitionists were Christians. William Wilberforce, for example, Paul's actually They're carrying on what Paul is actually laying down here. How so? Because he knows that when the gospel is preached, the groundwork is being laid for every social injustice to be undone. Church, it is through the preaching of the gospel, and as we live in light of that gospel, and as we live out the ethics of that gospel, that real social change is going to happen. It is only through the transforming power of the gospel that that's actually going to take place. It isn't mainly by social action. It isn't mainly by who you vote for into office, although those are good things. It is through Christ alone, and Paul understands that. It is the gospel preached, and it's being transforming in people's lives that real lasting change is going to happen. And that's his main concern here. That's the main issue. So we command slaves, honor your masters. So really, verses 1 and 2 here have a lot to do with contentment. doesn't mean we're passive towards social injustice, but it means don't think you can't honor God wherever he has you. But then after addressing these various groups, look there in verses 2, second half of verse 2. He says, teach and urge these things. So Timothy's to command the church to live in this way and their relationships with one another so that the name of God and the gospel aren't reviled. But then look in verse 3. He turns his attention now one last time to these false teachers because he wants to show one last time what sort of lifestyle they're teaching opposed to the gospel, what it produces. Second, a final word about the false teachers. Verses 3 to 5. We won't spend a whole lot of time here because we've already addressed this about these false teachers in other places and at other times in this letter, and because I really want to focus on the the warnings and exhortations down in verses 6 to 10. But Paul, he's already addressed the false teachers in chapter 1, if you remember, and then he addresses them again. Notice at the beginning, we saw at chapter 4, and now notice one final time. Here in verses 3 to 10, he highlights again these false teachers. And he highlights their teaching, verse 3. He highlights their behavior, verses 4 and 5. And he highlights their motivation, really down the end of verse 5 all the way to verse 10. And so really what he does here is he pulls back the curtain now. He pulls back the curtain and we really get a chance here to see these guys now at the end. And and what we find is we actually discover the root problem for these false teachers. The root issue. What's the main problem? The main issue. Here it is. Their hearts aren't content in God. That's the main problem. Verse 9. They desire to be rich verse 10 the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith what's the main point here the main problem is discontentment they aren't happy they aren't content in god that surprise you notice verse they're teaching verse 3 if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and their teaching and the teaching that accords with godliness, how, how do you identify a false teacher and false teaching? Verse 3, notice these men were teaching a different doctrine. It's the same word back in chapter 1 and verse 3. This is why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus in the first place to deal with this different doctrine. But verse 3 there, notice, Paul, chapter 6, gives a two-fold test for determining this. How, how, how do you know what is a different doctrine? Well, look what he says there. First, notice in verse 3, he says, It doesn't agree with the sound, that's a medical term meaning healthy, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning the gospel. Not just the words of Christ, but the words of about Christ. This is the gospel. It doesn't agree with the gospel. The sinless life of Christ, the substitutionary death death of of Christ, Christ, the, the bodily resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins by grace through faith in Him. Those are the sound words. Sound words of the gospel. And test number two, look there, verse three. It is a teaching that doesn't accord with or conform to godliness. How do you identify false teaching? It doesn't produce a life of godliness. No, healthy doctrine leads to godliness. Unhealthy doctrine leads to ungodliness. So what we believe affects the way that we live. And so their teaching, notice it denied the true gospel. It didn't produce godliness. That's that's their teaching. In fact, look there in verses 4 and 5 then. He goes on to describe now what sort of lifestyle this teaching produced. Notice, second, their behavior. We saw their teaching. Now look at their behavior, verses four and five. Rather than being godly, notice what sort of behavior their teaching produced. In verse four, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing, arrogant and ignorant. That's a lethal combination. He knows a lot, but he knows nothing. And he's, he's proud. He's puffed up, the false teacher. Verse 4, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Oh, these guys, they love controversies. They love theological arguments. False teachers can love doctrine. Usually, it's peripheral things that they want to bring into the center, and then they want to move what's at the center and should be at the center, the cross into the periphery. Oh, they love it. Chapter 1 and verse 4 they love going on about myths and endless genealogies and arguments about the law. Oh, they love controversies and theological arguments. I notice the fruit it's bearing in this church. Look there in verses 4 and 5. Look there. He says, which produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. That isn't the fruit of a healthy church, is it? And mark my words, when the gospel isn't being preached and it isn't being applied in the life of the church and the the cross has been moved to the periphery, that's exactly what it's going to produce. Slander. Suspicion. Friction among people. This is what their teaching was producing. And again, we we, we don't know everything that they were teaching, but one thing is clear. Look in verse 5. That godliness was a means of gain. Notice the motivation. It is not a love of God. It is a love of stuff. Verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. A word gain there, it means financial gain. So we don't know exactly what they're teaching, but their motive is very clear. They want to get rich on the gospel. That's their motive. They, they, they want to cash in on the spread of Christianity in Ephesus, and it's evil. It's wicked. In fact, there's really nothing more than a first-century version of the prosperity gospel, which is a gross perversion of the true gospel. I mean, get all you can for yourself. God, He wants you to be rich. He wants you to accumulate more and more and more earthly treasures. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. And all it takes is sufficient faith. It's God plus money equals satisfaction. And, church, I'm here to tell you that is heresy. It's heresy. And it's alive and well today, is it not? There was a a study done back in 2011 that showed that of the top 260 churches in the United States, the 50 of those, it's probably maybe more now, I don't know, 50 of those preach a prosperity gospel. It's heresy. It is idolatry. So here, notice is the final picture we get of these false teachers. The curtain here is pulled back. Can you see them for what they are? But then notice, in verses 6 to 10, Paul uses here now the false teaching of these heretics, their desire for gain. He uses it, notice, in order to instruct us about this very important topic of Christian contentment. And about our sinful cravings and desires for more and more and more. More money, more stuff, more possessions, more riches. So Paul's aiming at our hearts here. Do you see that? In fact, these words here, I think they echo Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 6, where if you remember, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves. Treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then he makes this statement and he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Beloved, that is a very frightening statement. What our money goes after is an indication of the state of our hearts. Our spending reflects our hearts. How much of your, 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 your money is tied up in stuff, it reveals your heart, Jesus says. So in verses 6 to 10, what he's doing here, you got to see this. He's pleading with you and me to say, look, look, consider your stuff, consider your treasure and what it says, what it reveals about your heart. And so he turns his attention from the false teachers to us. And yes, he reveals their motivations, why they do what they do, but he's, he's also warning and exhorting you and me. Finally, third, a few warnings and exhortations about riches. A few warnings and exhortations about riches. Look at verses 6 to 10. Verse 5 He's just told us about the motives of these guys. They see godliness as a means of gain. But then, notice in verse 6, he transitions now to instruct us. Notice, but. This was them, now you. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And then in verses 6 to 8, he goes on to give us some exhortations about contentment and riches. And then in verses 9 and 10, he gives us some warnings here about discontentment and this this craving and this desire for more and more and more. So I want to look at these warnings and exhortations with you here because I think there's a lot of application now for us. And beloved, see these warnings here as a means of grace. Warnings in the Bible are meant to be an expression of God's grace to you. It's sort of like those rumble strips on the highway, right? I used to really be annoyed by those until I realized they're trying to keep you from running off the road. And in a similar way here, these warnings about discontentment, these warnings about the desire for more and more and the love of money, it is meant to keep you from eternal destruction, So we'll look at them in reverse order, look at the warnings, verses 9 and 10, and then we'll be primed, I think, to heed the exhortations, verses 6 to 8, and apply them. Notice the warnings in verse 9. I see three of them. Notice the progression. Warning number one, riches are deceptive. Riches are deceptive, verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare. So those who desire to be rich fall into a trap. It looks good. It looks enticing. If I only had fill in the blank, then I would be happy. Ever thought that? Ever been tempted to think that? And it isn't true. Riches are like Seawater looks enticing when you're thirsty. But the more you drink it, the more thirsty you become until you dehydrate and you die. And that's exactly what he says is true about money and about possessions. The more we indulge, the more we want until we dull our souls to death with sinful desires. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, remember our study there, the preacher says... He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Beloved, it cannot satisfy you. It cannot make you happy. Riches are deceptive, he says. You know why else they're deceptive? Look down at verse 17 for a moment. We'll see this more next time. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Paul says riches are deceptive because they deceive us into thinking there's security in them. But it is setting our hope on uncertainty. The the deception is there is no security in them. And... To hope in uncertainty is foolish. And we see uncertainty all around us right now, don't we? Stock market, oil prices, job market, housing market, retirement funds, moths eat, rust destroys the uncertainty of riches. It's deceptive. And notice there in verse 9 as well, they tempt you. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. How do riches tempt us? Well, first, they tempt you with pride. Again, notice down in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Proud. We accumulate a lot of stuff. We store up a lot of money. And we begin to think, I've done pretty well. I'm good. Pride is fueled. And thus, there is this temptation towards self-sufficiency. And in verse 17, riches, he says, notice, create the illusion of security. Don't set their hope. He says, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So we're tempted, he says, to trust in what's in the bank and not what is in God. And soon, we don't set our hope in God's provision, we set our hope on what we have. And it's a trap. Riches are deceitful. Second warning, riches are dangerous. Verse 9 But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Riches are dangerous. You know why? Because the desire for them, that's what he's talking about, notice, the desire for riches. The desire for them is the breeding ground for thousands of other sins. In fact, that's his point. He drives that home in verse 10. Look what he says in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, verse 10, probably a proverbial saying here that Paul's quoting, is also probably one of the misquoted verses in all the Bible. And the King James doesn't help us out here, because the King James actually translates it, money is the root of all evil, but that's not, that's not a good translation. That's not what it says. That's not what Paul's saying. He doesn't say money is the root of all evil. He says, notice, the love of money is the root of all evil. And he doesn't say it is the root. He says it is a root. It's one of many roots, but it is a root. Nor does he say that money itself is evil. Money is morally neutral. But he does say, notice, that the love of money does lead to all kinds of evils. Now what kinds of evils? Well think about it. It leads to selfishness, it leads to envy, it leads to coveting, it leads to quarreling, it leads to marital strife, it leads to cheating and blackmail and stealing and murder. The lust for money leads to countless perversions of justice in the world, slavery, the drug trade, Sex trafficking, wars, corrupt politicians. It's all about the love of money. And the lust for money is the root of all kinds of evils, he says. And the desire for riches is dangerous because it will lead you down the road of sin. It's dangerous. Third warning. Riches can be damning. Damning. Notice the progression. Deceitful, dangerous, damning. Verse 9. The desire for riches plunges people into ruin and destruction. Plunge means to submerge. It pulls you down. It drowns you. And this is no doubt referring to eternal destruction not not only because that word destruction is used in almost every instance to speak of eternal ruin but just notice the second half of verse 10 he says it is through this craving the love of money that some have wandered away from the faith they have abandoned the faith and they have pierced themselves with many pangs what a violent image the love of money, he says, is spiritual suicide. Impaling yourself with it. Paul isn't playing games here. Heaven and hell are at stake right here. And that means we aren't playing games here. We, we, can't, we can't try and qualify this. We, we, I don't want to water this down. Riches can be damning. That's why Jesus says it's Hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. That's why Jesus spoke more about money than he did about heaven or hell. So it isn't over dramatic to say that how we view our money can make us or break us for eternity. And so if, if you and I, we don't heed these warnings, if, if brothers and sisters, we don't examine our own lives, we can move toward eternal destruction here thinking we're okay. So if those are the warnings, then what are the exhortations? Two exhortations I just want to give you in verses 6 to 8. There were more I saw, but I didn't have time. So just two I'm going to give you. Number one, exhortation number one. Be content. Be content in God. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So verse 5, the false teachers see godliness as a means of gain, but in verse 6, Paul, he doesn't, notice, he doesn't tell us to stop living for gain, does he? No, he says live for gain, but the gain he's talking about is much more than financial gain. Paul's saying, I want you to live for real gain. Living for financial gain isn't real gain. You know why? Well, look what he says in verse 7. Because it can't go with you when you die. For we brought nothing into the world, verse 7, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So he reminds us here of our birth. He reminds us here of our death. You came into this world naked and penniless, and that's the exact same way you're going to leave. Naked, I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I'm going to return. Our entry and our exit are identical. So don't live for financial gain, he says. Live for eternal gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So where does this contentment come from? Well, again, look down at verse 17. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So godly contentment, church, comes When we hope in God and not in riches, God is the gain. And so Paul says, don't settle. Don't settle for worldly riches. Be satisfied in God. Hope in God. Put your trust and your pleasure and your desire and your contentment in God. As the only one who can and who has met every need that you have who's met your greatest need, who when you were separated from him, the source of all joy in life because of your sin, he sent his son to die for you so that you could be reconciled to the one who can give you true joy and true life and true hope. And set your hope on God, he says. Find your contentment in God. And only then will you be truly content and only then will you be freed from this craving for more. Now again, what do we mean when we say contentment? I gave you Burroughs' definition, but I just want to show you real quickly Paul's definition. Flip over with me for a moment to Philippians chapter 4. We've seen it there in verse 17 of chapter 6. Put your hope in God. That's where contentment is found. But turn to Philippians 4. Paul actually tells us where to find contentment. In fact, he gives us the secret of contentment. Verse 11, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. So notice contentment, it isn't situational. In any and every circumstance, it isn't circumstantial. I've learned in secret, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's what's the secret, Paul? Here it is, verse 13. I can do all things through Him, through Christ who strengthens me. Again, probably one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, especially in sports, right? I'm 5'2 and 280 pounds, but I can dunk the ball. All things in Christ who strengthens me. No, that's not what he means. Paul's saying... I'm satisfied. I am at peace. I am content in Christ in every situation and in every circumstance of life because he knew that he can do all things in Christ, through Christ, who strengthens him. And Paul's joy, his intimacy in, with Christ, it was deep, deep. He was, he was in Christ, and beloved, you are too as well, by faith in him, united to Christ. And so he knew that Christ would infuse him with the strength and the joy and the hope for everything he needs in life and for every circumstance of life. He had learned that Christ is the source of all satisfaction and true joy. And he's the one who supplies every need. Why live for worldly riches when you have all riches in Christ? Be content in Christ. Final exhortation. Cultivate a simple life. Cultivate a simple life. Look at verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So here is Paul's call for the Christian to live simply. What should the Christian's attitude be toward material things? If we have food and clothing, it's enough because we have Christ. Trusting God's going to provide and that echoes exactly what Jesus said, if you remember. He feeds the birds. He clothes the lilies. Will he not care for you? In other words, he's saying... Christians should be happy, they should be content with the bare minimum. Any other message than that isn't Christianity, and it is idolatry, and it will lead you to hell. Now, he doesn't mean that's all you have to have, food and clothing. One commentator says, Paul is defining not the maximum that's permitted, but the minimum that's compatible with contentment. He isn't saying get rid of it all, live as a minimalist, although that might not be a bad thing. Nor is he just saying this is designed to make you miserable. He's saying this is designed to make you content. This is designed to make you happy. If you have God, you have everything you need. He's enough. So the answer to materialism, is isn't asceticism. We don't need earthly pleasures. It isn't monasticism. We're going to go live in a convent somewhere. The answer is God-centeredness. The secret to contentment is Christ-centeredness. All I need, all I have is Christ. So be content. Live simply because you're living for another kingdom. And the one who possesses all riches became poor for your sake so that you might be rich in him And I wonder, church, if our accumulation of more and more stuff and our desire for more and more is one of the reasons why so many people are unhappy, so many people are discontent, so many people are depressed because they aren't truly satisfied in Christ. And you can be today. You could come to Him, the true source of joy and satisfaction. And so church, I think the warnings and the the exhortations of the passage are a call this week for each one of us to check our own hearts. I mean, the the, the result of this morning's sermon should be for each one of us to search our own heart and to ask ourselves perhaps some really heart-probing questions and just be honest with yourself. Am I content in Christ? What is my attitude toward possessions and money? Am I hoping in God or am I hoping in the uncertainty of riches? Do I see Christ as all I have and all I need? If what I believe is to affect the way I live, then do I really live like I believe this is true? And if not, what needs to change? Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard for more information about our church visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706 and thank you for listening